Hey, welcome. We're so glad that you would join us uh, today. I wanted to speak from a different location, and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty anxious to get back into church, and I don't know when that will be. I'm hoping it'll be sooner than later. Uh, so I decided to speak from the auditorium. Usually this place is full of people. You guys are here. Um, unfortunately, I'm the only one here, but, uh, but I thought it would just be nice to be back here uh, together, at least distantly. So uh, we're in a new series, and Doyle started it two weeks ago, and what we're, uh, what we're doing is we're going through the book of Acts, and the new series is called Flip the Script, and we're talking about how God has the ability to take things that are evil or, or that are wrong and turn them into something that is good. And so if you're just joining us and you don't know anything about the Bible, let me just give you a little bit of context. Is in the book of Acts, um, we see the record or the history of the early church. And so there's a writer, his name is Luke, and he wrote one of the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote Luke, and he also wrote Acts. And they were supposed to be kind of one book, well, part one and part two. And, uh, and he's telling us about how the church started and what initially took place. And so the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the launch of the church when Peter gets up and he just gives this big sermon and the Holy Spirit shows up and they start talking in different languages and 3,000 people in one day come to believe in Jesus. And then we see the beginnings of the community that's taking place in Acts 2. And today we're going to be in Acts 3. Let's jump in together. Acts 3 verse 1 says this, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. And so in the early days, before Christians and Jews started to worship separately, they used to worship together. And the reason for this is because the Christians didn't see themselves as creating a new religion. In fact, they thought that they were the fulfillment or uh, the extension of the Jewish faith, is that the Old Testament and New Testament were supposed to go together. It wasn't supposed to be this whole new thing. And so they would worship together in the temple. Verse 2, Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And so you've probably experienced this before. It was the same then as it is now is maybe you're coming out of the grocery store and you've just gotten all your groceries, you're super excited, and then you make eye contact with the homeless guy that's sitting there. And you can't, you can't avoid him now. He's made eye contact. He knows that you know that he's there. And so now you have to address it. And what are the first words out of his mouth? Of course, it's he wants something. Well, that's kind of what happens here. Verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us, which is kind of an aggressive move, I feel like. Look at us. So the man gave him, them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And so, okay, customary as it is, 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 he's begging for money. He's sitting outside the temple gates and says, hey, can you hook me up? Can you give me a couple bucks? And what Peter and John do is they stop and they get down to his level, because remember, he's, he's sitting at the temple gates because he's, he's crippled. Um, they look at him in the eye and they say this. Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. So you got to imagine that he hears this response a lot. Hey, sorry, buddy, I don't have any money on me. I wish I could. I left my wallet. I don't carry any cash. This is probably what he was expecting. In fact, here's what's weird. Um, before I was even studying for this passage, this last week on campus, I had this very same experience. As I was walking around the church, and, and um, I, I happened to run into a guy, a homeless guy, who was walking on our campus. And he stopped me, and he said, hey, can you help me? I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. What do you need? And he said, well, I, I really need some money. 
And, and I wasn't lying. I literally did not have my wallet on me. I had no cash on me whatsoever. I wasn't just blowing smoke. And I said, I, I'm sorry, I don't have any money, but guess what? We do this food drive, and I want to thank you guys, of course, for doing that, and we, we appreciate it, and we've been giving it out to the community, and we have some updates coming on that pretty soon. Uh, but he, I said, I, I've got some food. If you want to go over, I can get you some stuff out of the food pantry. In fact, we have some SEG apparel. It's hot. You'll look good in the streets, and so let's, uh, let's go see if I can hook you up with some of that. And it was funny. As soon as I told him, sorry, I don't have any money for you, but... He literally yelled in my face, did you not hear me? I'm not looking for that. And then he walked away. And I was like, dude, you haven't seen the SEG apparel. Like you need to go look at this before you get mad. But uh, he, he was not happy. And so Peter kind of gives him uh, the same thing is he says, uh, sorry, but I don't have what you want. Now this response, and I'm not trying to get political here, but I just, I can appreciate this response is I sometimes wish the experts and the politicians and the leaders, when they're asked questions that they don't know the answer to, they would just say, I don't really know. I don't have the answer that you're looking for. I wish that I could help you. I understand your need, but I can't meet that need. And I think it's a, a good learning for us as uh, we walk through maybe a challenging season. There's going to be a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of concerns. There's a lot of needs that people have out there. And as I've learned over the years, I've, 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 as, as I've sat with families who are really going through a difficult season and they're asking me, hey, why is this happening? Can you help me? I, I may not be able to answer their questions. And so sometimes it's equally as comforting just to sit there with them and say, I don't have what you need or I can't answer that question. I, I'm not really sure what to do in this moment. And so here's what Peter does. He says, I don't have any money. I don't have what you're asking for. But I do have something. Here's what he says, continues on in verse 6. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped up to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. So when I read this, um, the scene that came to my mind, and maybe you guys remember this, old school, the first the original Willy Wonka is when he gets the golden ticket and he goes to his grandfather and he tells Grandpa Joe, I have the golden ticket. What is the first thing that Grandpa Joe does? After 20 years of being in bed, he jumps up, he begins to skip around the room. Now, I did a little research and here's what's funny. According to BuzzFeed News, Grandpa Joe is one of the most hated people on the internet. Yeah, the guy from Willy Wonka, the grandpa, that when there's work to do, he can't get out of bed for 20 years, but when there's chocolate to have, he can jump out of bed. So anyway, you can make your own, uh, you can make your own decisions on that one. But I would imagine that the scene is similar, at least the joy part of it, where this man who has been crippled, who has never been able to walk, has literally been staring at people's belly buttons his entire life, gets to stand up and see people eye to eye for the first time. I've seen some pretty cool views in my life. I've been to some pretty cool places, but I bet you that is the best view anyone has ever had. Continues on verse nine says this, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And so I want to just, I want to pause here for a moment and I want to address what might be the elephant in the room for some of you is this problem of miracles is if you grew up in church and 
And you've heard these Bible studies before and, or these Bible stories before and it's kind of a normal thing for you. you. You may not be thrown off too much. Yeah, of course, there's this miracle person who couldn't walk and now walk. But just imagine either hearing this for the first time or you're not a believer in Jesus and hearing it from their perspective. You have to imagine, I get this because I feel like this sometimes, is you're trying to tell me that one of the most improbable things this miracle happened a couple thousand years ago from these authors that we don't really know. We definitely don't know personally, and we're just supposed to believe it. And I get that. I understand why you might be hung up a little bit there. And so to be honest, um, miracles are one of the, one of the maybe on its surface, the more difficult things to wrestle with when you're coming to faith is does God, well, well let, me, let me back up a little bit. Do miracles actually happen? Well, I think that's dependent upon one primary question. And if you answer this question in one way, I think that miracles become fairly easy. The question is, does God exist? See, the possibility of miracles are really dependent upon what you believe about God. If you believe that there is a God who created all of this, then him coming in and, and kind of um, suspending the natural laws is not a huge deal, right? That he can do that. He created them. He sustains them. He can suspend them if he wants to. And so the real question is, does God exist? And I could do a whole series on the effect we have about why we think God exists and the arguments for it. And, but just let me give you one thing to ponder. The just incredible improbability that we are here today, that we exist, that, that we can think that we can view the external world, that we're able to, 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 to use our rationale and we're able, I mean, all of that is just so crazy. I think that that is probably the greatest miracle of all. And so the next question I have is, okay, maybe miracles can happen. Definitely if there's a God, then that's no problem. But why? They seem kind of sporadic, don't they? Like we've all asked God to do something and he didn't show up, but then we hear other people and they say that he's done something miraculous. And they're like, what is the whole point? What's the purpose of miracles. I think the purpose of miracles, this miracle and other miracles that we see in the scriptures and in our own lives is, is that God is using them to point towards something else. The, the real issue that miracles are addressing is not the issue um, that the miracle ends up curing. So for example, this guy, he, he ends up being healed and he can walk. Well, guess what? This guy died eventually. Right? The, the, the miracle was awesome, but it didn't really address the bigger issue, which is he's still going to die one day. Same with all other miracles. And so the miracles are pointing towards something else. There's something bigger going on here. And so I think God uses these to point us in different directions. And let me kind of go through a couple of them. One, I think miracles point inward to our need. But I think if we look at it and we kind of step back a little bit, what Peter is doing here is he's saying, you're looking for something. And you think that you know what you need. And maybe it's money or it's healing or whatever. But you know that there's something missing in your life. You know that there's a need that you couldn't meet yet. And so what Peter does here is he says, you know, those needs that you have, those needs are pointing towards something a little deeper. Now, yeah, we can address those needs. But unless you address the, 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 the source of your needs, those symptoms are, are going to continue to to arise in your life. Here's how I know this, is uh, many of you right now, you think you need money. Maybe you've lost your job or they've cut your hours or whatever, and you do need money, I get it, I'm, I'm there with you. But if you got the money that you wanted, 
would everything be okay in your life? No, and here's how I know this, because there is this thing called the curse of the lottery winner. These people instantly get what they want, 10, 20, $100 million. And you know what happens? They don't continue on in their life going, now all my problems are solved. It actually gets worse for many of them. And so it can't be that your, your ultimate need is money, or maybe it's healing. Maybe you're suffering to, physically right now. And so if you, God would just come in and heal you or heal them, make things better, then you would be okay. But I know that's not true because I know a lot of healthy people. I know lots of healthy people. And guess what? Their life isn't perfect either. They still got problems. And if you were healed tomorrow, which I hope happens, in 90 days from now, you'd have another problem. Maybe it wouldn't be physical. Maybe it would be relational. And so I think part of our problem is we don't know what our real problem is is we end up addressing symptoms instead of the source of our suffering. So one day I, uh, I woke up, I came downstairs to our kitchen, and I saw this huge puddle in front of our refrigerator. And normally I would blame my kids because they're constantly breaking things, they're constantly making a mess, but they hadn't been downstairs yet, so I knew that there was something wrong with the refrigerator. Now, here's what I could have done. I could have cleaned it up and then just walked away and said, okay, great. I have, I have solved whatever the issue is. But the problem with that is I, I probably would have come back the next day and then the next day and then the next day and there would have been a new puddle there because I didn't address what the source of the issue was. And so what I had to do was I not only had to address what the symptom is, but I had to figure out what is the source that is causing this? What is the real issue here? And so, oh wow, it turns out that my fridge was leaking and so I had to address it and I had to fix some things and I was able to fix it and yeah, I destroyed my floors unfortunately and I had to fix those too. But once I fixed the source, then I also fixed the symptoms. I think many of us, we continue to address all the symptoms in our life, but we refuse to address what the source of the suffering is. We just keep cleaning up these messes, but then we're surprised when another mess pops up somewhere else is because we keep ignoring what the ultimate issue is here. We keep, we keep ignoring what the source of the problem. So there's a similar scene with Jesus and um, he addresses the source of the symptom. You may be familiar with the story is there's a paralyzed man and he's brought to Jesus by his friends and he's there on the mat. And before Jesus says that he is healed, he says this, he says, your sins are forgiven which you have to imagine the guy said, that's not what I came here for. I came here for you to help me walk. And he says, no, if you came here knowing what your real issue is, this is what you would have asked for, forgiveness of your sins, because that's the source of your suffering. And then he tells him to get up and walk because that's a symptom of the source of suffering. So here's the bottom line. If you ever want to begin to resolve the symptoms of suffering in your life, whether it be physical or emotional or relational, you first have to address the source of your suffering, which is sin. And if you're not a church person, you're not super familiar with this concept. Sin is really just the idea that we have decided to rebel against God, that we do not want to be under his authority, but we want to be in charge of our own lives. And because of that rebellion, because we have rejected the author of life, we have embraced death and pain and suffering. This thing called sin came into the world and came into our lives as well. I think we need to, uh, we, we, we need to be careful, not underestimate um, the, the depth of our need. Is we think our need is something superficial, like a little bit more money in the bank. No, 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 no. 
Your brokenness is way deeper than your financial situation. We have to come to realize that it's not a small fix. It's not something that a self-help book or uh, just being a little bit more responsible or focusing a little bit more in this arena of our life. Now, the bad news is that we have to, we have to realize that miracles are a reminder and a pointer towards how broken we really are is that we are so broken that we cannot fix ourselves, that we need something, someone supernatural to intervene on our behalf. Miracles not only point inward to our brokenness and our need, but they also point upward to the one who can give us the hope and healing and salvation that we, uh, we desperately desire. Peter is quick to acknowledge that his healing was not done in his power, that he was nobody special, that he didn't make this happen, that it was only because he had faith in Jesus, and through that faith, the power came in order to heal this man. And so miracles are really an affirmation, a proof of the claims of who Jesus is. Because lots of people have said that they're the Messiah. In fact, if you were here on Monday night watching our Q&A, um, Dr. Pratt talked about some of his patients. And some of his patients say, well, you know, I'm actually the grandfather of Adam and Eve, or I'm the Messiah. Lots of people have claimed some big claims, like being the Messiah. But the difference between those people who end up in a mental hospital and the people like Jesus is he had the power to back up his claim. He was able to perform miracles. And so miracles are a proof of his claims, and they're, they're eventually and always going to come full circle and point back to Jesus. Is this miracle created quite a stir amongst the people? No doubt for sure. If you saw it, you'd be like, dude, what is going on right now? You start talking to your friends. That's what happened here. And next week, we're going to talk more in depth about this. But eventually, the end result of this miracle is that thousands of people come to believe in Jesus. And that's because miracles always point back to Jesus. Miracles also point outward to the world. Here's the misconception I think that we have about miracles is that miracles are somehow about us. It's somehow about fixing something that is broken in our lives, but that's only secondary. Miracles, or at least the purpose of miracles, are to, are, are to, uh, to, to point people who are on the outside to see who Jesus is and the power and grace that is available. When Jesus did miracles, it was a, a witness to the world of who he was and what he could do. Miracles then become an example for us of how we're supposed to live. See, when Jesus would perform miracles or the disciples would perform miracles, what they were doing was they were setting a model for living for us. And so some of you guys go, sweet, how do I do that? <laughs> like, I want to do miracles. That would be awesome. Well, let's back up a little bit. Because Jesus did, when Jesus um, was about to leave, he said to his disciples, look, you're going to do even greater things than I have. And they're probably thinking, dude, you were able to heal people. I can't wait to do that. Well, hold on. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is that when Christians come together, a great number of Christians come together, they're able to do far more than Jesus was able to do through his miraculous means. So Jesus would feed the hungry. He would heal the sick. He'd bring hope into people's lives. Guess what? We as Christians can do all of those things. Yeah, maybe it'll be supernatural. I don't know. But here's what I do know. If we come together and we're unified and we continue to seek out the things that God loves, then we're able to touch way more people than even Jesus was when he was doing earthly ministry. So let's get back to our story. I mentioned earlier that because of Jesus miraculous healings. Peter and John created this big stir. Lots of people were talking about it. And so Peter did what any great pe preacher would do. Once he has a crowd gathered around him, he would 
take an offering. <laughs> no, he didn't take an offering. Uh, he preached, right? He saw this as an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And so here's what happens in Acts 3.21. It says, heaven must receive. And here he's going to explain kind of what on a cosmic scale miracles are pointing to. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So what he's saying here is he's saying a long time ago, prophets came and they said that God was going to send a Messiah, somebody who was going to help put the world back together. And that person is Jesus. And right now he is back in heaven with its heavenly father, but eventually he's going to return and he is going to finish what he has started. And so what did Jesus start? I think it can be summarized in one thing, restoration. Jesus started the restoration of the world. If you know anything about restoration, and I I love... um, car restoration. I, if, if you know me and you've been around for a little while, you know I have a 54 Ford pickup truck and I've been restoring that thing forever. It's been like, I think, 12 years now. And it's just a cool process of seeing something that's as broken down and restoring it back to its original condition or even better. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Is he saying miracles are ultimately a pointer towards what has been backwards and what will be forwards. We intuitively know that the world was not supposed to be that way. It doesn't matter if you're Christian, doesn't believe if you believe in Genesis and the garden and all that kind of stuff, is everyone in the world knows that as we look at the loss and the pain and the confusion and suffering and death, nobody says, yep, that is exactly how things are supposed to be. We all know that there's something that's wrong, that's off, that's just not quite right. So the question is, how do you know that? How do you know that the world isn't the way that it was supposed to be? Because if we're just this big cosmic accident, there is no way that the world is supposed to be. It just is the way that it is. And yet, even if you don't believe in God, or even if you're not sure about this whole faith thing, you look at the world and say, things were supposed to be different. There's supposed to be life and flourishing. And the reason you know that is because God created you on purpose, and he created you with a purpose. And you can tell that this was not it. And so when we decided to rebel against God and sin entered the world, the world was turned upside down. But when Jesus comes and he starts doing miracles, what he's doing is he's not turning the world upside down. He's turning the world right side up. He's actually restoring things to the way that they should have been. And so miracles aren't a a supernatural thing. They are actually the most natural thing because they are turning nature back to the way it was supposed to be. They're also pointing forward to the way things will be one day. All the miracles that we see in scripture are there to uh, alleviate suffering and trouble and hardship. And what they're doing is they're pointing towards the day when there will be no one who is hungry, no one who is sick, no one who is suffering, no one who dies. That one day... Christ is going to return and he's going to make all things new. And it's this belief that Christians have held on to for the last 2,000 years that have given them the ability to have the the strength and courage and hope to face some really difficult circumstances. In fact, not only to just face them, but to walk into the fire boldly in order to serve and love people well. Last Monday night, I did a Q&A with Dr. Pratt, which I said, and, and I loved having him. He was so insightful and such great conversations. And, and during that conversation, I had a, like an aha moment where I was able to finally verbalize something that I've been feeling but haven't been able to pinpoint yet. And, and it was this, and it may not sound all that revolutionary to you, but it, it at least was important to me is I've been feeling 
And I guess the best way I can describe it is disoriented since this whole shutdown happened is I just couldn't get my footing. I just felt like things are off. And no matter what I try to do, and I try to address these different issues and put out these different fires, I just couldn't quite get my footing. I just, I just felt like it was this, I'm in a daze a little bit. And I realized that it's because every arena of my life has been turned upside down. All the schedules and all the habits and all the disciplines and routines, everything that I had in my life was stopped. In just a few short days, it all got stopped. I didn't go to the gym anymore. We don't have weekend services like we, do, like we usually do. I don't get to go on date nights with my wife. My work schedule is totally different. What I do is totally different. And everything was in transition. And once I realized that, I went back to an old book that I had read years and years ago. And it's, uh, it's called Managing Transitions by William Bridges. And he describes transition cycles. He says there's, there's a few main cycles. The first one is this, it's an ending. This could be an ending of a relationship or a job or a graduation or, or the kids move out. And, and I think that that fits the bill for where we're at. I don't know anybody who hasn't seen something end recently, a part of their life be transitioned and end. And it happened pretty dramatically. Then we enter into the, what's called the neutral zone. And this is a period of confusion and emptiness and distress. And, and I realized that's kind of where I'm at. I'm in this neutral place where I feel disoriented. I feel a little bit of emptiness and confusion. And I don't know what's going to happen next. And there's this part of me that just wants everything to go back to the way that they were, back to life as normal, back to the, the schedules and routines that I had. And, and I'm looking for a way to get back to that, but I can't see a way forward. And then there's this final phase, which is a new beginning. Either you get back to work or you start your new job or you enter into a new relationship or you go into the next season of life or you get your old life back or, or whatever it may be. But here's the question I have, because we're all looking forward to that day, right? When our life gets back to the way that it was. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in this neutral zone? See, what what keeps us from making really poor decisions or just giving up as we wait? I think the answer to that is about what we believe lies in the future for us. What we put our hope in. We're hope-shaped people. We really thrive on what we believe is going to take place in the future. We, it's the only way we survive. If we didn't have that, we would be hopeless. And we just wouldn't continue on. The only reason why we continue on to strive for that next job or to, to, to find that next uh, relationship or to, to, to push forward in the seasons of confusion is we believe there's something better waiting for us. We have a hope in something. And so let me give you a really extreme example of what this can look like. If, you, uh, if you're familiar with Viktor Frankl, he was a psychotherapist who was put in Auschwitz. And uh, as he was in this Nazi concentration camp, as a scientist, he decided that he was going to use this as a time where he could make observations. And so he began to watch how people were dealing with their circumstances. And of course, I want to be clear, I don't think we're anywhere near that. But I do think that the way people dealt with this period of confusion was interesting and maybe there's some application. So he said there's four responses. The first one was um, people got brutal and cruel to each other, even those who were the nicest people before this. They just immediately, as soon as they got in there, they just got nasty. The second group of people, they, they just gave up. They had lost all of their hope. 
without their, uh, without their previous life and all of their relationships, they just decided that it wasn't worth living. And he tells a story about a senior block leader who was a, a well-known composer. And he came to him and he said, I have a dream that this is all going to end on March 30th. He thought it was a vision. And as the day came closer and closer, news reports continued to pour in that it didn't look like there was going to be an ending anywhere in sight. And so on the 29th, he started running a temperature. On the 30th, he lost consciousness. And on the 31st, he died. And he says that the reason why he died is because he lost all his hope. He was hopeless. So the third group of people, they had hope in their former hopes. That lots of people held on and continued to push forward because they believed that they were going to get their former lives back. Many held on um, thinking that they were going to get their, their health and their family and their achievements and their fortune and position in society, that all of the things that they formerly had put their hopes in, that somehow it was going to be restored to them. And here's the crazy thing that happened. If these people made it out of the, by and large, they made it out of the camps. But when they got back to their lives and they realized that it wasn't the way that they thought it was going to be, that they didn't have all of their things back, that many of them gave up. And he said the fourth group was a small group of people. He says that they were, these were the prisoners that were able to keep their inner liberty and it pushed them through. They stayed kind and were able to survive. And as a scientist, Frankel was so interested in this, he wanted to know why. And here's what he said. He said the thing that was different about this group was in the camps where everybody else's souls were ripped apart, their foundations were laid bare, you were able to see what everyone's life was built upon, what their hope was in. And the people who were able to stay strong and continue to, to survive were the people who had a hope anchored in something beyond themselves or even in this world. So here's the question. What's your hope in? Is your hope in getting back to the way things were? Is your hope in that you can get your schedule back and you get your job back and you can get your kids back to school and you can, is that what your hope is found in? Or maybe it's if they just found a vaccination or a cure. And so every time you hear news reports that there could be one and then the next day they say, well, we're not quite sure about that. Or there's got to be one, but it's going to be sometime next year. What's your hope in? I've seen people go on this crazy emotional roller coaster throughout this season. And I just want to remind you that no matter what you, you've put your hope in, vaccination, cure, getting your job back, getting your old life back, here's what's going to happen. 90 days after you get that thing or that takes place, you will have something else to complain about. <laughs> it's true. You're going to be frustrated and angry and disappointed. and It's going to happen for the rest of your life. This is a unique season for sure, but the emotions that you're feeling, they're not going to go away. And so I think we have to ask the tough, tough questions. How do we find contentment even when we're in the middle of chaos and uncertainty? Paul gives us a great uh, pointer. He says, as he's facing death and, and he's in prison, he says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, I'm not there. I'm not anywhere close. I am far from that. But it is something that I strive for is I would love to be content no matter what takes place. Now, that doesn't mean I'm apathetic. That doesn't mean I'm indifferent. That doesn't mean that I'm just sitting idly by. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. Because Paul is a hustler. Paul's out there. He's making things happen. He's pushing the kingdom forward. But he says, no matter what I face, I will be content. I will have an inner peace and joy that cannot be shaken. And so how do we do that? Really quickly, let me just give you maybe a couple pointers. 
One is look inward and not in a self-help kind of way, not in a you can do this kind of thing. It's really in an acknowledgement of your need. Look inward at your anger and your frustration. Be honest with yourself. You don't have to fake it till you make it. You're depressed. You're angry. You're frustrated. I get it. Be honest with where you're at and allow that to be an acknowledgement of your need. Don't try to power through it on your own. You're not that good. You're not that great. You're not that strong. It's okay. Look inward and acknowledge. All right. I'm not okay. Because it's only then when you acknowledge you're not okay that you can look upward to the one who can actually address the suffering, who can actually do something about it. And so some of you, you need to give up your life for the first time to Christ. You've been trying to do this. You've been white knuckling. You've been trying to figure this out on your own for a long time. And you have finally come to the place where you acknowledge, I can't do this. I need somebody to save me. I'm tired of trying to save myself. I'm tired of the illusion of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. I need Jesus to save me. Some of you guys, you've made that decision, but you haven't lived it up. You haven't like stepped into it. You've been kind of holding some things back. And so you need to go, okay, I got to continue in those moments. And there's a lot of them in those moments. I got to just lean in. Go, okay, God, I need, I need some extra time of worship, some extra time of prayer. I need to do some extra time of, of scripture reading. And so we need to also, and finally, look forward. Not just look forward to whenever the days or weeks or months when life gets somewhat back to normal. That'll be great, and I can't wait for us to be back together. But, but looking forward to ultimately, eternally what awaits for us. Because if we can continue to keep our eyes on that, that's going to enable us to have contentment in these moments. Let me finish with this. Is I've been talking to a lot of folks, and a lot of folks are, are, uh, are just feeling discouraged. And I get it. And so I want to just leave you with a little bit of encouragement. Parents, you're doing a great job. I know it doesn't feel like it. You didn't sign up to be a teacher and a parent and a cook and, a, and it's just the kids are driving you crazy and you haven't figured out how to do the, get the homework done. Your kids are going to be fine. Keep loving them. Rely on God's grace. He loves you. It's going to be great. Don't stress it. Also, for those who are essential workers, we just want to thank you. We understand that life has, has not been easy for you either. Yeah, you've been going to work, but it's been different. It's been stressful. You had to take time away from the family even more than usual. We, we just thank you and we appreciate you. Those who have been maybe furloughed or, or are now unemployed, I want to challenge you to keep a sweet attitude. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills and you're not sure where the next paycheck's coming from and you're just kind of concerned and worried and I, I get it. But ultimately, your employer is God. And so he's got it. So try to keep a sweet attitude, trusting that he is going to work out all things for your good. For those who are lonely, that's what we're here for. Because I know there's a lot of people who have to either live by themselves and they haven't gotten out much. And please reach out to us. We, we just want to love on you. We want you to become a part of the Seacoast family. We want to be able to, to help you um, become a part of this community and feel loved and embraced and supported by us. And so please don't hesitate to reach out. And so for everybody, I just want to end with this as we love you guys. We miss you guys. We are eager to be back together and allow us to serve you as a staff, as a Seacoast, as volunteers. Allow us to just Come into your life, whatever that looks like, whether it's phone calls, text messages, we deliver something, some meals or whatever it is, we want to serve you because we love you guys. We miss you guys. We can't wait um, to, uh, to be back together. So anyway, let me pray for us and then we'll go. Lord God, we just thank you so much for how good you are to us and um, that you have continued to point us 
point us inward to the needs that we have and upwards towards the solution that you give and outward to the world that we can change. And, and Lord God, we, uh, we look back at the way that the world was supposed to be and the way that it will be one day when we find incredible hope and courage and strength. And so, Lord God, through this time, we just pray that you would work in us and we work in our spirit, that you would change us, Lord God, and that we would come out different than the way that we entered. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.